Take your seats. Go ahead and sit down, everyone. If you're in the foyer, please come inside. We're about to get going here. All right. Well, welcome to Sierra Bible Church this morning. Uh, I want to say good morning. My name is Amy. If we haven't met, I'm part of the staff here. Uh, and I want to welcome you. If you are new or if you've been visiting, you, there's information in the seat pocket in front of you. And we also have a gift for those that are visiting or those that are here for the first time. And so you can get that on your way out today. Uh, I don't want you to forget that. Come on in, everyone. So as we get started here, um, I want to share with you some things happening this month. And the first one is actually Trunk or Treat. And thankfully, there is an awesome video made that explains everything to you. Hey, Truckee family, this is Pastor Brad Knoll from Sierra Bible Church. I want to be the first to invite you to our annual Trunk or Treat event. It's coming up October 31st, Halloween night from 5 to 8 p.m. What you can expect here is a lit parking lot where you, you and your family can come, enjoy some carnival games, um, trick-or-treating from decorated cars, um, also grab a, a quick bite to eat. Uh, the Charlie Brown Show will be playing as usual. But more importantly, this is a place that you guys can come, feel safe, it's lit up, um, it's a one-stop shop for you and your family. And what the great thing is, it's totally free. Uh, we here at Sierra Bible Church, we love you, and we hope that we will see you on that night. Remember, October 31st, 5 to 8 p.m. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. That's right. Our trunk or treat is this uh, this uh, October. Uh, uh, Halloween's on a Monday uh, this year. And uh, if you, we this is a full scale event, a community event, and so all volunteers are welcome. Uh, we have full registration online right now through our app. Whether you want to host a uh, car or you want to help with games or you want to help with, hey ladies. Yay, they made it in, all right. All right, so uh, the registration is online and we want you to uh, invite everyone in the community. If you're not able to volunteer, that's okay. We still want you to come to the event. Uh, last year we had over about a thousand people attend the event. And it's funny looking at that video because there's snow on the sidelines. Um, you never know what's gonna happen this month, but so far it's looking all right. Uh, so trunk or treats happening this month. Uh, something else happening tomorrow is a baby shower. Um, I mentioned this one a couple weeks ago. It is for Kira, and Kira's baby is due November 8th. And uh, we want to welcome uh, everyone to our community baby shower tomorrow evening and Ray Hall at 6 o'clock. We serve a nice meal and just um, are there to support the family and uh, support new parents. Um, and some of you may not know who Kira is at all, and that's fine. That's why we have these, so that you can get to know the families that are here at Sarah Bible. Um, and especially those that may need your prayer support or whatever it is as they enter a new season of life. <laughs> All right, so baby shower tomorrow night. We mentioned Trunk or Treat. Uh, this guy, if you are not familiar with him, he is a Christian comedian, Bob Smiley. Anyone? Anyone? You in the back. Yes, Pastor Wayne. Thank you. Pastor Wayne knows Bob Smiley. He is a Christian comedian. Um, we have, uh, we had a chance to have him uh, on November 5th and host a dinner and comedy show for um, all the adults. So this is not a, uh, a kids event. There's no child care. But if you're 18 and up and you want to come with a group of friends or you want to have a date night, it's $20 per person, um, which is a great deal for a gr some food. And uh, it's going to be in here in the sanctuary. 
And it is a registration as well. So there's a limited amount of spots and we're not going to necessarily take people in at the door uh, because we wanna know how much food to provide. So I would get online for that quickly if you are interested in hanging out with Bob Smiley. I think that's his real name. Okay. All right, so, and the last thing I wanna mention is our boot drive. We actually haven't done this for the last couple of years, um, but in the past and this year, we are going to provide 180 pairs of boots for youth in the community that need snow boots. And uh, Mountain Hardware partners with us on that. They provide us with the boots at uh, wholesale. And so with that, we can purchase 180 pairs. And on November 12th, we're gonna give those away. Um, they are pretty much youth sizes, and you can volunteer for that the day of, or you can simply purchase or donate um, to the cause, and we'll, we're planning on uh, giving out 180 pairs. If we get a whole lot more, then we'll, we'll buy as many boots as we can. Um, but that's happening on November 12th. All right, so all good things, all good things. Where'd he go? Oh, you're right there. Hi. Okay, he's here. All right, so let's go continue on the Book of Mark uh, with Pastor Jesse. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Well, this is what I expect from you at 1030. Actually, I was very pleasantly pleased. Our 830 service was completely packed, and I asked them, where did you all come from? <clears throat> is there something else going on? And uh, no, they're just there. So that's nice. It's good to have you here this morning. Um, I don't know what your your week was like, but I, I, I pray that uh, there was a blessing in this week for you. I, I pray that if you had a challenge, that God challenged your faith, that you would grow closer to him in that. And I think we're going to be encouraged this morning by the gospel of Mark as we have been uh, from week to week. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11. So if you have your Bible or a Bible app, go ahead and turn to Mark 11. If you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to use one of ours. Just raise your hand. One of the ushers will give you a Bible. And uh, if you don't own a Bible and you need one, you can take this one for free as a gift from us. Uh, if you want uh, nicer Bibles, they're for sale. If you want nicer Bibles that are free, they're at the Lost and Found. So go make your way over there. That's always good for a laugh. I've been saying that joke for as long as I can remember. And you guys still think it's funny. When you stop laughing, I'll stop telling the joke. There was a period of time where I would goof off with the staff when Pam was working with us, and I, I can get into these real comedic moments, and, and I think it was Gavin, he was interning last year, and he was laughing. Do you remember this? And Pam walked out and said, Gavin, stop laughing, and he will stop. So, Gavin thought it was funny. Pam had worked with me for 10 years. She was bored of it, and uh, so... Um, <clears throat> the title this morning, if you are one to take notes, is a triumphal entry. If you're one that takes notes, I want you to do me a favor, as I have done, and I want you just to put a question mark at the end if you're a note taker. As someone who loves the Bible, and if you're a Christian, I would hope that you love the Bible, pray that you love the Bible. One of the things I walk through with our interns in biblical interpretation is, is really when you're observing text, when you're looking at scripture to ensure, well, what is it that God wants me to, to learn from this? I actually share with students when they're first learning, one of the best things you can do is to actually purchase a Bible without chapters and without verses 
and without headings. And the reason for that is sometimes what you're doing, if you're looking at the headings or even some of the paragraph breaks, you're, you're trusting a biblical interpreter to, to break that down uh, for you and you're understanding it and you're, you're saying, yep, that's what this is about. So this morning, if, if you go ahead and just look at chapter 11 and, and over chapter 11 or off to the side in your margin in chapter 11, there probably is this heading, a triumphal entry. Are you all with me? If you have a Bible that doesn't have that, though, you would read this without that in mind. We'll get to that here in a moment. The example I use, I think the best illustration of this is Genesis chapter 1. If you've been here for a few years, uh, you've heard this, so bear with me as I share with those who haven't heard it. But hey, chapter 1 of Genesis, what is that about? Most of us would say, hey, Genesis 1, that's about creation. The reality, though, is, is it isn't about creation. And so what I do with our students as I say, go ahead and just look at Genesis 1 and circle the amount of times, or just circle every time you see the word God. And inevitably what happens, I think there's like 31 or 32 verses in Genesis 1, there's 31 to 32 references of God in Genesis 1. So then I ask the question, what's Genesis 1 about? It's about God. And we're being introduced to God. God is the main character of this book. It's all about God. And just like any novel, we're being introduced to the main character. And the main character happens to be creating. Genesis 1 is not about creation. Genesis 1 is about a God who's so gracious, he creates mankind to have relationship with him. And so in here, when we see chapter 11, I want you just to ask this question before we read it. Is this really a triumphal entry? Is that what is really actually occurring here? I'm going to argue that this is not the triumphal entry in which we think it is, but it is a way for Mark to introduce us to who Jesus really is. He is the king. Now, if you segment the book of Mark, you should segment it this way. The first seven chapters are Jesus serving. And he is serving the masses, and he is serving the crowds. He is reaching out to the broken and the hurting. And then in chapters 8, 9, and 10, the specific emphasis of 8, 9, and 10 is Jesus transferring his power and knowledge and authority to his disciples. And so he teaches those disciples what it is to be a disciple. So if you're wondering, what does it look like to follow Jesus? And you were wondering, well, where should I go for that? Lots of places you could go, but Mark chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. Oh, my microphone. Oh. Thank you, Siri. <clears throat> if you get to that point, chapters 8, 9, and 10, all about discipleship, great place for discipleship. Now, in chapter 11, we have another, another pivoting point. Remember what we call the, the Markin sandwich. It's the way that Mark typically writes most of this book. There's a story, there's uh, an insert, and then there's a connection to the story. Likewise, we have a sandwich in the entire book from just a 10,000-foot view. You've got the service of Jesus, you've got the teaching of Jesus and discipleship, and then from the rest of this book, which takes up a third of the Gospel of Mark, from chapters 11 to the end, one-third is dedicated to the last seven days of Jesus' life. This is the kickoff to the last seven days of Christ's living. And one third of this gospel is dedicated to that, the ending of that story. Service, and then you have the teaching of discipleship, and then you have suffering. You have the suffering servant who's trying to teach us about discipleship. 
That's the mark and sandwich as a whole. Now, uh, as we read this, uh, let us, again, let me put before you to ask the question, triumphal entry, is this really what it is? Let me ask another question. If you could be king for a day, president for a day, California governor for a day, what would you do? How would you announce your one-day term? <laughs> what would you enact in your first day? What would you do? I know for me, when I think of being king, I would think that there should be lots of pomp and circumstance. There should be a celebration to acknowledge my one-day reign. But that's not what we see in Jesus. We know that Jesus is king, and he's going to ride into Jerusalem with this idea that he is king, but he is not the king in which the crowd thinks he is, and he is not a king in which some of us may think he is. Now we pick up in chapter 11 as the disciples draw near to Jerusalem. And in this moment in chapter 11 as Jesus begins his journey in the last seven days of his life to march towards the cross to die for your sins and to reconcile you to God. So if you would, would you honor the word of the Lord this morning and stand with me? Now, chapter 11, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage, which means house of figs, and Bethany, which means dates. So you've got the, guard, the full garden here. At the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt, tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and need of it and will send it, we will send it back immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside the street. They untied it and some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that would cut, they cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The Lord, these words, Hosanna, we know mean save now. We ask, Lord, that you would save us now from ourselves, from the world, from Satan, from the flesh. And save us into your wondrous, heavenly embrace. And we trust you for that now as we study your word. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. You may be seated. Okay. Remember, by way of, you know, reminder that this particular book is written, it's written specifically to the Gentile Christians who were suffering under Roman rule. The Christians in this time, when this book was being written, were being persecuted, murdered for their faith. Now they would be reading this and they would see the connotation that Jesus is entering into Jerusalem for again what we call the triumphal entry. History has a little bit to teach us about what a triumphal entry actually looks like. Let me give you a few historical examples. Muhammad, who gave birth to the Muslim faith, Upon defeating a group of people, he would enter after victory into the city of Mecca, their center of worship, 
And as a coronation for his triumphal entry, they would throw a parade for him, and Muhammad would ride a war horse. While he rode that war horse, 400 other men would be on horses behind him. If that was not celebratory enough, he would also throw in another 10,000 foot, uh, 10, foot soldiers with him. The declaration as he entered was one of victory, but it was also one of declaration. A declaration of victory, but a declaration that you either joined the Muslim faith under Muhammad or you were enslaved or murdered. This is the triumph of Muhammad. Give us your sons that they would die for our God. Now, by contrast, this place in which we are reading, the Roman Empire, the Romans also had a triumphal entry of sorts, a parade, a celebration. A Roman general, if he conquered at least 5,000 men, if he killed at least 5,000 individuals, they would throw a parade for him. They would give him spoils of war. They would give him slaves, and he would ride into the Roman city on a golden chariot while people shouted praises to him. That wasn't enough as they would travel through the city. They would inevitably end that parade, not in downtown Truckee like we do at the 4th of July, not at Donner West End Beach, but no, no, no. They would end it in a stadium where those who were defeated by war, those who were defeated by the general of the Roman Empire were then thrown into an arena and they would fight to the death against wild beasts. Well, Jesus, by contrast, enters Jerusalem, not on a war horse, not in a golden chariot, but rather he shows up on a humble donkey with 12 ragtag, uneducated disciples. This is his triumphal entry. It looks nothing like the Roman entry. looks nothing like Muhammad's entry. Is this really a triumphal entry? We know that he's not marching towards the victory over the Roman Empire. He's marching towards the victory over your heart that he would die on the cross. He's not marching to a throne to rule with an iron scepter. He's marching to the cross. That is our king's throne. There he will be spit upon, he will be mocked, and he will die. All of this occurs, as the text tells us, at the Mount of Olives. This is an important place. This is an important location. This has implications that go all the way back in the Old Testament, and it has implications that will run us into the future in our eschatology, our study of end times. We're told of the Mount of Olives, this is where David hid from Absalom. This is where Ezekiel saw the glory of God. This, we're told in Luke, after his death, after his resurrection, the Mount of Olives is where Jesus will ascend to the Father. This mountain is of great importance. Zechariah also tells us that in the way that he ascended, the way that our Savior, Savior left this world will be likewise the same way he returns, the second advent of our Christ. Zechariah chapter 14 verse 4 is an amazing passage of what it will look like when our Savior touches down on planet earth again. Listen to this day. On that day when Jesus returns, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives, when Christ returns, this is what he's telling us, the Mount of Olives will be split from the east as to the west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azul, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the day of Uzziah the king of Judah. Then... 
the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day, there shall be no light, cold or frost. Verse 9 of Zechariah then goes on to say, and the Lord will be king over all of the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. Singularity of worship, singularity of kingship. Jesus in this moment is arriving on a humble donkey, but we can't help but understand he will arrive on this same mountain again in a different way. The Old Testament points towards this reality. Zechariah chapter 9 tells us that Jesus will come again, that the Messiah will come, and he will come. Literally, it tells us in Zechariah, riding on a donkey. Hundreds of years before this event, it's prophesied he's going to show up. The Messiah is going to show up. Surely the undertones of this reality, the prophecy, all of these things are in the minds of the people. So surely Jesus is king. We must praise him. But here's the sad fact. As they're waving their palm branches and as they're placing them beneath the donkey's feet, they are worshiping Jesus, not for who Jesus is, but what they think Jesus will do for them. They think that Jesus is coming in the same vein as Muhammad, as the same vein as a Roman soldier, that this triumphal entry will be one that is rallying the troops to the top of Jerusalem to overcome the Roman Empire, that God will finally rule with his iron scepter. But that is not what is occurring in the passage. They're worshiping him not for who he is, but they want him to be. Now, what I want you to see with all of the prophecy here and, and all of the connection, even Jesus telling his disciples, hey, guys, go into the city, grab this donkey, bring him to me. I have need of it. And if you take him and someone comes out and says, why are you stealing the donkey? You're just to simply say, the Lord has need of it. And they'll understand. I mean, this is the equivalent, my friends, the only way that I can really step this down into our world, this is the equivalent of us walking over to, to the next town over, the next place over, you know, walking over to Marta's camp, looking around in the driveway for an empty e-bike. And there one is. You see that e-bike down there, you grab it, and you're about to just wheel it out of the driveway, and some rich guy comes poking his head out of his door and says, what are you doing with my e-bike? And you say, Jesus. I mean, this is not necessarily a normal thing, but it's a fulfillment of prophecy. It's also showing us a couple things here that are important in regards to discipleship and in regards to who Jesus our King is. Jesus is completely submitted to the will of the Father. He is obeying and submitting to all of the Old Testament verses and he's fulfilling them. He is radically obedient unto God the Father. And likewise, the disciples in this moment, they're obedient. They go to the next city and they do as the text literally says in verse six, they did as he said. May this be true of you. May it be true of me. Everything the Lord tells me to do, I will do it. He is king. He sits on the throne of my heart. He has conquered sin. He has conquered guilt and shame. He has reconciled me to God the Father. This is extreme obedience on Jesus' behalf marching towards Jerusalem. He will be obedient to the point of death and to the point of, of mockery and he will do it all as Hebrew says for the joy set before him knowing that that act would reconcile you to God the Father. Which I have to ask the question, what was the, when was the last time that you can, you can mark in, in your mind or on your calendar where you were radically obedient to Jesus? Where you heard the word of the Lord say do this and you did it. In spite of the mockery and the misunderstanding, why does the Lord need a donkey? 
When was the last time that, that you heard from your pastor or an elder or a leader where God spoke to you in some way in a still small voice and said, it's time to give up something? And you did. You were radical in your obedience. When was the last time when you felt the Lord say, worry not, and you actually radically obeyed that and you stopped fretting and you stopped having anxiety and you just trusted the king who has it all under control? Do you know that? Do you believe that? Is it concreted into your heart? Everything is solid in God's eyes. Everything's gonna be all right. I said something to my wife last night. I can't remember what the context was. We actually had quite a full day yesterday, memorial service yesterday, and then went home, took a nap like Jesus after doing some ministry, got up from my nap, drove down to Reno, went to Scarlet Hope's uh, event in Reno. And if you're not familiar with Scarlet Hope, they, uh, they're doing a wonderful job reaching women in the sex traffic industry in um, brothels as well as uh, strip clubs. And, and so they had a fundraiser last night because we do support that ministry. We want to see these women healed and to hear story after story of, of these women who were brought, brought out of that darkness and have found life. They had one vid video testimony of a, a gal who was molested and, and, and addicted to drugs and her life was just a mess and someone brought her into church and she found Jesus and she's turned her life over. Now she works for Scarlet Hope. And it's so crazy because she shares the story. She said, you know, when we were in the strip club, uh, <clears throat> these, these gals from the church would come. We just called them the funny church ladies. And she said, I would sit in the club smoking my cigarette and I would mad dog them in hopes to make them scared that they would run away and no longer be in the club because she said they were a threat to my money. These church ladies were a threat to the bottom line. And then she got saved. And she tracked down those ladies and ended up working for them. I think that's pretty cool. You can rejoice for that, by the way. <clears throat> I share that story because at some point I was, I was driving home and, and I can't remember what I was saying, but I was being very pessimistic and my wife was encouraging me to be optimistic. And I told her, you know, you know, you optimistic people. And then I realized and it said to her and, and Arian who was in the car with us, Jesus is one of those. I remember for a long time, I, I used to say, you know, people would say, Jesse, you're kind of a pessimist. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm a realist. That's what I am. I'm a realist. And then as I started to look at scripture and I started to study this idea between the people who are a glass half full and the people who are a glass half empty, and I realized in the eyes of the gospel and the eyes of Jesus, your cup overfloweth. It's beyond optimism. Do you trust the Lord with your kids? Do you trust the Lord in your marriage? Do you trust the Lord in your workplace? Do you understand he is king? He has it under control. And at the end of the day, he will be victor victorious. That is guaranteed. Some of you right now are waiting. I hope he ends before one o'clock because I'd like to go see the 49ers play and win. Who cares if they win? <laughs> Don't you? I love football, but when it comes to the gospel, football can take a backseat. Not only is Jesus in complete control, I think we would be amiss not to highlight the great humility of our king. Humility is a great force. There's no war horse here. There's just a, a donkey. And I think if you were to look at the life of Jesus, you would see throughout the life of Jesus, he embodies humility. 
Here in the text, he tells the disciples, I have need of a donkey. I need to borrow a donkey. The word borrow should be somewhat familiar to you in regards to the life of Christ. He has borrowed a manger. He had to borrow boats when he went out onto the sea with his disciples. This piece of text tells us he borrowed a donkey. We're told that he borrowed a room on several occasions, the upper room being one of them. He even had to borrow a wash basin to wash his disciples' feet. He's just constantly borrowing things because he owns nothing. In fact, he literally says, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. If that's not enough, Jesus himself at the end of his life when he dies, we're told that he had to borrow a tomb. Why? Because there's nothing on earth that ultimately can hold Jesus. There is no tomb that can hold Jesus. There is nothing that can contain who he is except for the human heart. And that humility, if you think about it, the reason he rides on a donkey and a war horse is so that you will see the great accessibility you have with Jesus. Right? If Jesus was like Muhammad on a war horse, I don't know about you, I'm afraid of horses. I know some of you are horse fans. My grandfather raised horses in Texas. I'm deathly afraid of them. I think they're too large and too dumb for a human being to be around them. And those of you who love horses, you're like, oh, I just can't believe that. Okay, fine. Love horses. That's great. That's your thing. It's not my thing. If he rode in on a golden chariot, unapproachable. But instead, Jesus rides in on a lowly donkey. Is anyone in the room afraid of a donkey? I know you might be afraid of being a donkey, but is anyone afraid of a donkey? And the reality is, is there's nothing fearful of this donkey. So Jesus rides in humble, letting everyone know. And and just so you're aware, I, I haven't shared this, but in this last week, this is the last week where the Jews are to celebrate the great Passover where they're celebrating the fact that Jesus passed over the families, passed over the firstborn so that they would live. At this time of Passover, it is believed a sum total of two and a half million Jews flooded to Jerusalem. Everyone around the known world, if they worshiped Yahweh, would travel to Jerusalem for Passover, for the sacrifice. We're told in the other gospels that this city is a buzz. It is packed. The energy is high. Jesus, in his perfect control of all things, has picked the perfect day to come into Jerusalem, to enter into Jerusalem. The city is on fire. The energy is high. And they take their their cloaks and they put it on the donkey and they take their leaves and their cloaks and put it under the donkey's feet. Why? Why? Again, it's, you are higher than us. You're king. And by taking off their cloaks and putting it under the donkey, they're saying, it's okay if you step on us. It's okay if you're higher than us. But they really are not worshiping him for who he is, are they? So as the city's on fire, it's a buzz. They think that Jesus is going to be ushered into Jerusalem. He's going to go to Jerusalem and he is going to conquer Rome. And, and, And what's crazy about this. If, if you've ever been to this area, and I haven't, so I can only rely on other testimony and, and, and reading for what it's like, but the, the Mount of Olives sits about 2,600 feet above Jerusalem. And if you were to visit there, those who've had the chance to go, I've been told what they typically will do is they'll actually teach you, and they'll bring you around the backside of the mountain, and there really is not that great of a view there. But once you reach the top of the Mount of Olives, if you're at the top of the Mount of Olives, what you see is the entirety of Jerusalem as well as the Temple Mount. We're actually told in the other Gospels that when Jesus approached the the top of that mountain and looked over Jerusalem, that he mourned 
on this donkey and on this journey over that veranda, looking over the people of Jerusalem, he knows what he's about to experience. He knows where he's going. He knows what his mission is. He's going on behalf of you. And he's going on behalf of myself and anyone else who would call out on Christ, call out to Christ in faith. And he mourns. One pastor says it like this in regards to this humility that Jesus is embodying. He says, the paradoxical kingship of Jesus shines so bright in this moment. He is royalty and deity wrapped in a single person. Yet he moves forward in his declaration to be king in lowliness, weakness, and in service. He does not come in pomp, but in meekness and lowliness. He comes in humility and simplicity with the humility that is embodied in Christ, I think we have to ask the question for us as disciples and saints, do we also, do we also exhibit the kind of humility Jesus embodies? Are we willing to serve people? He's given us a picture like this donkey is willing to serve its savior. Humble, obedient, because that's what we see in Jesus, obedience to the word. Sinclair Ferguson uh, is another great author I absolutely love. Has anyone ever, anybody here in the room ever listened to Sinclair Ferguson? Some, some of you know Wayne. <laughs> Wayne knows everything. He knows Bob Smiley. He knows Sinclair Ferguson. Who else do you know, Wayne? He knows Chad. <laughs> Woo! Yeah, good answer. Sinclair Ferguson is a, he's an old Scottish guy and he's got a great Scottish accent and he's got a big upper lip that makes him talk a little funny and he's just wonderful to listen to and he's theologically on spot and his humility is, it just, it's there. You feel it when he talks. Sinclair says this, think for a moment what Mark's record would convey to those who read it first. The Christians in Rome no doubt many of them had seen generals enter Rome in triumph to receive the accolades of victory. How stark the contrast between the Roman glory and Jesus' humility may have seemed. How mighty and powerful the sword and political power by contrast with King Jesus. Yet we know that his kingdom was established while the glory that was Rome disappeared into oblivion. Do you hear what he's saying? Sinclair's saying, listen, all you have to do is study history. The kingdom of God still exists and it was born in humility and the kingdom of Rome is gone because of its pride and its decadence. I love this last part in his quote. We know that what Jesus did in Jerusalem established a kingdom that would outlast all kingdoms of this world and break in pieces every man-centered kingdom which sets itself against it. I want to read that again because I love what he's saying. And it's the truth of the gospel. It's the truth of your future. It's the truth of your king. This is the declaration of what Jesus is doing in this moment, what he is establishing, that his kingdom would outlast all earthly kingdoms and he would shatter all man-centered kingdoms on earth. Jesus had come to take his throne, but he committed himself to begin the reign from a cross. Do you believe within your heart the only kingdom that exists, the only kingdom that's real, the only kingdom of substance is Jesus, and the only king that is really there is our king, our savior?
Some of you maybe have heard of G.K. Chesterton. G.K. Chesterton actually, in regards to this humility, he writes a little bit about the donkey. One can't help but see the humility in the donkey. And, and so he wrote a poem from the donkey's perspective. Here's the poem. When fishes flew and forests walked and figs grew upon thorn, some moment when the moon was blood, then surely I was born with a monstrous head and a sickening cry in ears like errant wings, the devil's walking parody of all four-footed things, the tattered outlaw of the earth, of ancient crooked will, starve, scourge, deride me, I am dumb, but I keep my secret still. Fools, for I also had my hour one far fierce an hour and sweet there was a shout about my ears and palms beneath my feet there's an old commercial that some of you will remember just so you if you ever wondered what hours of studying and wordsmithing looks like i'm about to show you there's an old saying when i was a kid uh, for the serial tricks does anyone remember the the trick cereal i don't even know if it still exists we don't let our kids eat sugar because we're good parents <laughs> but we do feed them protein which makes us bad parents to some um so there's a, here, here's how stupid is i was sitting there i don't know why this popped up but you know that whole stupid commercial is like hey tricks are for kids you silly rabbit they're not they're not for adults what are you doing and so i was trying to think about this idea of foolish things and humility and and so hours of, of thinking, and here's what I came up with. Silly saints, foolish things, the Lord has need of them. See, some of you wonder, could God ever use me? Would God ever use someone like me? I mean, do you know the struggle I've had? Do you know the addictions that I've wrestled with? Would God ever use something, someone like me? Do you know... You know, that's not as much of a sin. I mean, really, that's where it starts. Lord, you, I know I'm not worthy to be used. Lord, you want to use donkeys to establish your kingdom so people will never give the donkey the credit but the one who sits on the donkey. You see, the true sin is to think that you deserve God's love in any way. The true sin is to think that you have anything to offer anyone. You upon yourself, by yourself, you have absolutely nothing to give to anybody. The only thing that you can give to anybody is that which has already been freely given to you. As scripture says that we love because he first loved us. The only power that is in you is the humility to tell people that you are in need of a savior. The power you have is in how little you are and how insignificant you are. It doesn't come by great celebration and great standing, by being tall, dark, and handsome. If that's you, God wants to use you too. But it doesn't come from those things. It comes from humbling ourselves and admitting that we have need of a Savior. It comes from admitting that if we don't have God intervene in our parenting, there is no hope for our children. That if we don't ask God to intervene in our marriages, there's no hope for our marriages. If God doesn't intervene in the world, there's no hope for the world. There is no message of hope and salvation apart from Jesus Christ. This passage is to declare to us that Jesus is and will always be the only king worth attaching all of your identity to. And yet we also see this other great reality 
of our king that he is the only one who can save. The crowd cries out, blessed, the coming kingdom of David. You are the Messiah, Hosanna, which means save now. My friends, Jesus is the only one who brings eternal salvation. Psalm 118 reads, save us, Lord. This is where the Hosanna declaration comes from. It's called a conquering psalm. Save us, Lord, we pray. Oh, Lord, we pray. Give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, Jesus is making a declaration that he's the king, the king of heaven and the king of earth. But he's the king and the author of salvation. Don't be tricked by all of the world's little agendas and all of the world's little messages that you need anything in addition to Jesus. You need nothing in addition to Jesus. Christ's salvation and triumph surely will be victory over death, over sin. It'll be a victory of truth over error and love over hate and forgiveness over condemnation. But as we conclude the passage, understanding that Jesus is this true king, that Jesus is the humble king and Jesus is the only king who can save, we come to the conclusion of this triumphal entry. This is why there's a question mark. It really doesn't seem like one. So on the exit of this triumphal entry, it doesn't end in a stadium. It doesn't end in music. It doesn't end in a potluck. No, it ends by Jesus coming down the mountain and he goes into Jerusalem, verse 11, and he walks into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, it was already late. And then he went back to Bethany with the 12. That's the end of this passage. Very common ending. But it's an interesting ending. It's an ending that, that, that first of all, you have to, you have to look and, and ask yourself the question. Remember, there's several places in Scripture that tell us exactly what Jesus is going through. He has weeped up upon coming to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the people. He knows that he's going to carry all of that weight upon himself. And so after this triumphal entry of sorts, he goes down the mountain late at night where no one else is there except the disciples, and he goes into the temple. He looks around at the temple, and then he quietly leaves. This is the temple where two and a half million lambs will be slain. This is the, the center point of worship unto Yahweh. This is the place that the Jews have all of their tradition tied into it with the Levitical priesthood and forgiveness and reconciliation to God. This goes all the way back to Moses and is carried through. This temple is a big deal. But what did Jesus say would happen to that temple? 70 AD, destroyed. Why? You're the temple. Our king is so large, he's letting us know, yeah, I'm humble, but I could never dwell in a house made with human hands. I'm gonna dwell with you, the human heart. So the temple had to be torn down so that you would understand you become the temple of God. He exists within you. He becomes one with you. And so Jesus is in this temple and he's thinking surely of all the past that is wrapped up in that temple, but also the future of that temple that it's going to be torn down. But you know what else Jesus is doing? He's casing the joint. He's in there and he's looking around and he knows that God's house is to be a house of prayer and a house of Worship and what was happening in the court of Gentiles is people were taking advantage of Gentiles. If you're here and you've never come to faith, 
If you're here and you're exploring Christianity, the court of Gentiles is, is the place for you. That's the place where you would get an introduction to Jesus. That's the place where you should have easy access to sacrificial animals so that you could take that animal to a priest that you've never met before in hopes that your sins would be forgiven. The whole court of Gentiles was for non-Christians, non-believing people to come and encounter God. And instead of finding open access and an open door to church and people smiling and welcoming them, instead they were taking advantage of them and taking their money. You want forgiveness? Well, instead of $10 for a dove, I'm going to charge you 50 That's what was happening. Jesus knew this, so he's casing the joint. Why? Look at verse 15. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he drove out all those who sold those and bought and who bought in the temple and he overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons he goes in and he wrecks shop he puts on his football pads and he just starts trucking things you can't do this in my father's house but he's also again pointing to the reality your heart is what god's after are you a people of prayer and worship to jesus that's what he wants you to get at. Jesus was just this king for a day. He's going to go to the cross. But surely he knows, he knows that again, he's going to return. And I can't help but think that Jesus is not only thinking about this first advent to the cross, but the second one by way of contrast. And we'll conclude here in just a few moments. And the first coming, Jesus came to die. My friends, he's going to come again, but he's going to come to reign. In the first coming, he, he comes on a donkey, but Revelations 19 tells us he's going to come on a horse, a warrior horse. Here he comes as a humble servant. Next he'll come as exalted king. He came in weakness the first time. He'll come in power the second time. He came to save in the first coming. He will come to judge in the second. He came in love, and then he'll come in wrath. He came with deity veiled, but his deity will be revealed. He came with 12 disciples. He'll come with an army and angels and, and, and his followers in the next coming. He came to bring peace the first time. He will come to make war the second time. He was given a crown of thorns in this life, he will be given a crown of royalty when he comes again. He came as the suffering servant, and he will come again as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. As Jesus ponders in this temple, I can't help but think that he was thinking, you know, my first advent, not many people bowed, but in my second advent, everyone will bow. Just as Philippians tells us, every knee will humble itself before the Lord, and every tongue will confess. This is a humble entry to welcome you into the family, and I pray that you accept that invitation this morning. Jesus has ridden in in humility to open up the door to make salvation and God accessible to you, regardless of your backdrop, regardless of your sins, and regardless of your mistakes. The door is open, but do not be foolish. Christ is coming again. And a revelation tells us he will come on a white horse with a sword in his mouth, ready to make war. All that is evil will be done away. Satan will be completely conquered. And you who believe in faith, it'll be a wedding feast, a wedding supper. You will sing, you will dance, you will rejoice, and you will be in eternity forevermore with no more tear and no more pain and no more sin. Just one great, great celebration of family and community. Sundays is just a little preview an imperfect preview but it's a good beautiful one isn't it
Would you stand with me as we sing and as we respond back to the Lord for the reality that he is our king? Lord, as we worship you now, I pray we take time to reveal our hearts to you. Maybe, Lord, in the next moment or so, we will take this time to confess our sins, knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive them. Maybe for some of us, we're in that place, we're just tired of confessing our sin. And we know, you, we know you know our sin, and so we're not even gonna bring that to you, Lord. We're just gonna, maybe we just need to take time to say thank you. And if that's you this morning, thank him. Just say thank you, Lord. Some of you maybe are in need this morning and you're willing to lay your life down before the Lord, just like that cloak beneath his feet and say, Lord, would you use me? Would you mold me? Would you shape me? Would you heal me? Would you help me? It's okay to cry out to him right now. Lord, would you continue to mold us and shape us to be the people you desire us to be? that we would glorify you in this town, that we would obey you in all ways, that you would help us to grow in our sanctification and you would help us bring people who are lost to you. Would you use our humble service for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. We worship the God who was. We worship He opens the prison doors, he pardons the raging seas. My God, who was a victory. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today.